0: Amen. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, actually, we started our series, The State of the Church. And uh, uh, two weeks ago, we also uh, looked at this question, um, which was, do we have the right focus? Do we have the right focus? This week, we want to continue that series, The State of the Church. And we're going to look at how can we accomplish the mission? How can we accomplish the mission. The mission of First Baptist Church is this. First Baptist Church exists to glorify Jesus by calling people to know him, to grow in him, to show him to others. So as a church, we want to be about calling people to know him, to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to grow in him. This is discipleship. And we want to show him to others. This is Evangelism. I'm certain you all have heard the parable of the lighthouse before. I know I've shared it with you. But I want to refresh our memory this morning. And so I'm going to read that parable of the lighthouse to you this morning. On a dangerous seacoast where the shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station, the building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous, and some of those who were saved and others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money and effort to support its work. New boats were bought and the new crews were trained. and The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station became unhappy one day that the building was so crude and poorly equipped that they felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea so they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in and they enlarged the building now the life saving station became a popular gathering place for its members they redecorated it lavishly and made it into almost a clubhouse but by now less of the members were interested in going to sea on the life saving mission so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work yet The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, even though most of the members were either too busy or just lacked the necessary commitment to take part in it themselves. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and hungry people. Some were dirty and sick, and others spoke a strange language, and soon the beautiful new clubhouse was dirty and messy. And So the property committee built a shower house outside the club, where the victims of a shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, a split developed in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they were an unpleasant hindrance to the normal life of the club. Yet others insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the life of all kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could start their own station. And so they did. Now I know that sometimes we hear that and we think, well, that's, that's ridiculous, especially as we try to relate it to the church, but it's not ridiculous. In fact, it's how most churches are operating today. They've lost their focus on the mission that is before them. The very mission they've been called to as a church. Instead of being the life-saving station that Christ wants them to be, they've turned into a club only to please themselves. And so, this morning I want to share with you two specific action points that we must have for us to accomplish our mission. They are urgency and perseverance. Urgency and perseverance. Urgency means that we recognize an immediate need that cannot go unsolved. Something within us will not let go of it until it's complete. Think of all the things that we get urgent about in life. Sometimes it's our work. Sometimes it's our sports team. Sometimes we get urgent because we have to fix something. Or we get urgent about saving money. Or about our family or a spouse. But when, when are we going to get urgent about what God wants us to be urgent about? He wants us to be urgent about the message of Jesus Christ. Why? Because no one is guaranteed of tomorrow. But not just urgency, but perseverance. Perseverance means that we hold on even when we feel like giving up. Thomas Edison was the most prolific inventor in modern times, perhaps ever. He made scores of attempts to invent the light bulb. After an unsuccessful effort, one of his associates said, Well, you failed again. No, replied Edison. I have succeeded again. I now know another way how not to invent a light bulb. When things get hard, you know what happens? We want to give in. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to walk through hard times in ministry and difficult times in ministry. I want to just walk away from it. I've been there in my life, but I also know this. I know that when I am walking through those hard moments of life, when things all around me seem to be crumbling, I know that I can trust in my Savior. I know that when I look around and people are leaving and forsaking, when my best friend stabs me in the back when I lose my job when I can't seem to go on any longer I know I can look my enemy in the face and proclaim greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world we need urgency we need perseverance what do we need urgency in we need urgency in reconciliation 2nd Corinthians 5 verses 20 and 21 tell us this therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians. He's identifying himself to the Corinthian congregation as an ambassador of Christ. Our modern Perception of an ambassador is an official of the highest rank, chosen and certified by the government to represent it before another. And so we can appreciate what Paul is saying. He's saying, "I'm I'm Christ's spokesman." And so, so we understand that and Paul does not act in his own authority, but he acts under the commission of a higher power, and an authority that. That sent him, and therefore he is divinely authorized to say what he's saying to the Corinthian people. What is it that Paul is saying? Well, he implores them. That word implore means to beg, to cry, to plead with them. And what is it that he's imploring? He's imploring them. To be reconciled to God. He's imploring for them to come back to God. Please understand that an all-powerful God does not sit and wait for humanity to come and make their appeal to Him. But rather, instead, God sends out ambassadors to make appeals to humanity. Now, here's a question. Why is Paul... Imploring the Corinthians, who are already believers, to be reconciled to God. They had already accepted the gospel message. So why is he making an appeal for reconciliation? Here is the best explanation that I have found. Reconciliation is an act of God's grace. It is carried out on the cross and offered freely to people. It is for them to receive it. However, it may be received more or less effectively. Just like Paul made the claim that he had labored more abundantly than others. The Corinthians had indeed been reconciled to God. However, Paul is appealing that they receive the reconciliation more effectively. We know that the Corinthian church, if we've read through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I preached a whole series through 1st Corinthians, we know that they had all kinds of problems. And at the root of those problems was the fact that they were not fully reconciled to God. This is why the pagan society made such inroads into the Corinthian church and why they struggled with false apostles. And Paul says, I implore you be reconciled to God because you've fallen short. They were bickering and fighting amongst one another. They were giving in to sinful lifestyles, and so Paul is admonishing them. The reconciliation, this kind of reconciliation, causes us to come to terms with the alienation that we have from God due to our sin that's in our lives and that we are responsible for that alienation. We are responsible for rupturing the relationship between us and God. Notice this reconciliation is also to God. Yes, we need to reconcile to one another. But if we are not reconciled to God, it does us absolutely no good. Our lives are to be reordered around God. Also, reconciliation means that we stop using the world's criteria for evaluation of others. We instead look at others from God's viewpoint. So those who are reconciled to God are people who are continually reconciling. Listen, Paul is not interested in some sort of little abstract doctrine. But he is instead focused on the concrete task of reconciliation. As a, as a church, we can't only be about preserving sound doctrine. But we are called by God to be a reconciling force. So that means that we have to have a servant's heart. That means that we have to be active in ministry of helping and healing. So here's my question to you Have you ever begged someone to return to Christ? I'm not trying to be, you know, cheesy, but have you ever gone up to someone that has seemingly walked away from Christ and begged them, implored them, cried for them to return to him, and we, we do this not for our sake, We don't implore people to return to Christ for our sake. We implore them to return to Christ for the sake of Christ because he has paid the price for them. And so they claim to be a believer, but now they seemingly have walked away from Christ. And so we are imploring them to return to Christ because... He has paid the price for them. He has done so much for them. So everyone owes their life to Christ in return. So we need to understand that we should never allow people to just walk away. But we have to actively pursue reconciliation. So when you see that person that claims to be a believer walking away, you actively pursue them. Urgency and reconciliation. Reconciliation but also urgency in calling people to salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says this. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul's appeal is that they not receive God's grace in vain, which is an indication to not hear the message with empty, deaf ears. God has made salvation possible, and He pleads with people through His children to be saved. But a person can receive that message with empty ears and an empty heart. So one can either do nothing with a message or deliberately reject the message. Either way, they are refusing to let the grace of God have any effect in their lives. And so the appeal is do not receive God's grace in vain. Sinners are called to be reconciled to God, to be saved from their sins by faith in Jesus Christ. Saints are called to obedience, to grow up to maturity in Christ. And this growth is not done in isolation but as a part of the body that is working together in unity and harmony. Paul further encourages the Corinthians to realize that God's grace is more than a one-time decision, but an ongoing lifestyle that begins now. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the only reasonable time to be saved. There may be no tomorrow. In fact, there may not even be one hour left for some of us. Any person's life can be snatched away at any moment. Now is a strong word. We hear that a lot. We've we've said it as parents now, right? We tell our children, I want this done now. Maybe we've heard it from our spouses or other people. What does it mean? this instant this verse says now is the time of God's favor now is the day of salvation it's not later it's now folks sometimes we're guilty of thinking we have all the time in the world but we don't we can't sit back and think to ourselves that our mission will get accomplished eventually Now's the time to do it. Not later. I also want to talk about some perseverance. And that's perseverance and bearing fruit. Perseverance and bearing fruit. Luke 8, 15 tells us this. As for that in the good soil, they are those who Hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Now, this is a parable from the parable of the soils. And here we are told that God has prepared the hearts of some people. And when they hear the word of God, they latch onto it wholeheartedly, they listen intently. They hold on to it. It germinates in their life. It begins to sprout. And it brings forth fruit. And it comes forth with patience. Now, I've ministered in the farm grounds of Missouri for a long time when I was younger. That doesn't make me a farmer. I know a few things from talking to farmers. One thing I know for sure is no farmer has ever produced a bumper crop impatiently it doesn't happen they know that patience is needed and sometimes i think that that if you if you've not been around farming we tend to think that crops are automatic you plant a seed and the plant starts growing real farming is real work it takes a lot of specific attention for the crop to flourish it's not accidental. No farmer ever throws a seed out and just expects the fruit to be there in abundance that afternoon. You know what is easy to grow? Weeds. Yep, weeds is easy. But if you want to grow a crop, it takes patience, it takes preparation, it takes cultivation, it takes hard work, it takes watering, it takes the sun to shine producing and all all things work together to produce a crop. And it's the same with our spiritual life as well. You're not going to just grow by accident. It's enduring more and studying more and serving more. It is constantly watering and plucking the weeds. It takes work. But so often as Christians, we don't want to put the work in. And for some reason, we have this mentality that the Christian life is all about us showing up to church on Sunday morning. But that's so far from the truth what kind of ground does God find in your heart today has his word taken root in your life is there real fruit patiently produced in your life what Christ wants from his people is fruit fruit that comes from a heart that is committed to him Perseverance in Christian growth, 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul, speaking to Timothy, and his appeal is that Timothy be consistent or persevere in his growth. He says, practice these things, which is the implication of meditating on them. So Paul is telling Timothy to think hard on what he's telling him and then do it. It's not just meditating on the teaching and thinking, boy, that teaching sure does sound great. But it's meditating on the teaching and then putting that teaching into practice. And so the appeal is that Timothy shows some sort of advancement from his earlier years. And if Timothy puts into practice Paul's teaching, he will have matured in his faith. How about you? Do you persevere in your Christian growth? Are you satisfied where you are? Paul then goes on in verse 16 to tell Timothy that he needs to keep a close watch on his life and doctrine. Timothy is to scrutinize not just his behavior, but his theology as well. In church, it's, it's really uh, simple. Correct orthodoxy should lead one into correct orthopraxy. In other words, correct doctrine should lead one into correct behavior. Moral and doctrinal integrity are the inseparable twins of the Christian life. Look at verse 16. Paul tells Timothy to persist. He's already made it clear in numerous writings into Timothy that there's evidence of salvation in one's life, and here he is making it clear that if Timothy persists, then his salvation will be evident. Holy living and sound teaching are necessary fruits of saving faith. And when I say holy living, I'm not speaking of following all these made up rules. We like to enforce made-up rules sometimes. But holy living is a life that understands one's freedom in Christ, but also has a desire to live a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is separate from the sins of the world. This is not saying that perseverance is meritorious in salvation, but that perseverance that produces holiness and doctrinal orthodoxy gives evidence of salvation. Furthermore, let's remember that Paul is speaking to Timothy. And what was Timothy? He's a pastor. Perseverance of the preacher is vital to the endurance of the hearers. When the pastor perseveres, it builds the trait in his flock. If the pastor is stumbling around and wandering, it will infect the congregation with spiritual sickness. The best antidote for error is the truth. To overcome error, one must persevere in truth and practice righteousness. Listen, church, our perseverance brings others to Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is saying. So persevere in your Christian growth. Persevere. We need urgency and perseverance. We need them both. But I also want to share with you some things that that I believe we need to start now and keep on doing. The time that we start living for Christ isn't tomorrow, it's right now. But that's not enough. We have to keep on living for Him. I know you've heard it before, but the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. When I ran my marathon a few years back, I remember my goal um, for the whole marathon was a 10-minute mile. That was my goal. And I started the race, bunched up with a whole lot of people, and I found myself running far too fast. And I thought, well, I'll be okay. I'll kind of settle into my pace, and I'll be all right. I wasn't. The first half of the marathon, I ran a 9.42 pace. In the last half, I ran a 10.36 pace. And I ended up not making my goal. Why? Because I started too fast. I couldn't maintain my pace. And it's the same way in the Christian life. We all know of people who started out strong in their decision for Christ and then they fell away. I'm not saying don't start out strong. What I'm saying is, no, it's a lifelong process. And so I want to share with you what we need to start and keep on doing. And So here are six ways that work together for us starting and staying on the mission. One, start now and keep on believing. The words from Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Sometimes, after we come to Christ through faith, we think that we have to take over. And so we come by faith, but then we convince ourselves that the rest of our spiritual life is to be lived by works. We forget that God's word says, the just shall live by faith. We don't work our way to salvation, and you don't perform a bunch of works to keep your salvation. Our hope of heaven has nothing to do with the works we perform. After we come to know Christ as Savior, our hope of heaven lies in the belief that the Lord Jesus has redeemed us and will keep us. He will make me who he wants me to be and work in me by his spirit. We sing that song, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It is by this faith that we receive the spirit. And not by works or fear of not measuring up. It's by faith that we continue to live for Christ. We must keep believing. We have to refuse to buy into the lie that says, I no longer have to keep believing. And we can just kind of of kick our belief to the curb. Faith is a continual action. We continue in faith. So we start now and we keep on believing. But we also start now and we keep on praying. Philippians 4.6 tells us, Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. First Thessalonians 5.17 tells us, Pray without ceasing. The church in Philippi had things to worry about when Paul wrote that to them. He tells them, don't be anxious. They were facing external and internal threats, external and internal threats to their peace. They were confronted by the aggression of opponents. They were facing difficult times. Paul, who is their spiritual father, is in change in Rome. He's awaiting the verdict of life or death from the emperor. They were facing problems within the church. People were focused on their own agenda in the church at Philippi. And the solution that Paul has for them is to focus on Christ. God's antidote to anxiety that disrupts our joy and deprives us of peace is prayer. And listen, there's two ways to handle things, to handle stress in our life. One, we're born with. And the other only comes when our heart is radically changed. And it, therefore, changes our perspective. The first way says, you've got to have a stiff upper lip. You're the master of your own fate." You're the captain of your own soul. You just need some self-reliance. It says you are in control and you just need a healthy dose of optimism. However, eventually we are faced with things that are beyond our control and we're faced with nothing but stress and frustration. Try telling the breadwinner in the home who loses their job after decades of employment that they just need some optimism. Or try to tell the cancer patient who has just had their prognosis changed from treatment to pain management that they just need to be optimistic. Try telling that to a homeless person that they just need more optimism. Or try telling that the person that has suffered from natural disasters, that have lost everything, try telling them just to be happy. It doesn't work because it doesn't solve a problem. Paul encourages us to a radically different idea when faced with problems. He gives the antidote to anxiety. It's not the promise of some politician, it's not some sort of self help coaching, it's not a yoga pose or some sort of calming meditation. We're directed to the anchor of our life that, give, that goes deeper than the surface of the storms of our circumstances. It goes deeper than any emotional mantra that you can say or any stress management technique that you can come up with. Paul directs us to anchor our life and our well-being eternally to the life of the ever-living God. When our life is defined by Christ and his cross and his resurrection power, we can have joy. And that joy brings calmness and gentleness and thankful prayer and the pondering and patience of the character of Christ. The result is... We find the protection through the peace of God and our troubled hearts find peace in the presence of God. Prayer keeps those things before us. Prayer causes us to stress our total dependence on God. God, I don't have the answers. God, I don't know what to do now. God, I am struggling. And in the middle of our struggles and our circumstances, the only way that we can overcome them is to receive an injection of supernatural power that is called prayer. So start now and keep on praying. Start now and keep on investing. From Philippians 1, 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Folks, when Paul writes this, he's sitting in prison. He had become convinced that he would be found innocent. Not so he could enjoy life to the fullest. Look at what he says. He's convinced he's going to be found innocent. So that he could do what? So that he could minister. Paul. Paul long to reach people and to meet the needs of the world that struggled under the weight of desperation. Let me just say to you this morning, church, don't give up on people. It doesn't matter how far gone you think they are or how close to the edge or whatever you want to come up with. Continue to reach out and invest in their lives. Paul, sitting in prison, was convinced that he would continue to minister. Listen, our desire is that God would be glorified in and through us, that we would promote the cause of Christ and be used up as a drink offering for for Jesus Christ that we would be willing to die for the glory of Christ and while we live that we would labor with every ounce of strength that we have for Jesus Christ so let me ask you this morning who are you sharing with who are you continuing to share with start now and keep on inviting Matthew 22 verses 8 through 10 then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out in the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, until so the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king is angry at his first guest and says, They didn't deserve to come. However, He's also gracious. The feast stands ready, and so he commissions his servants to go out into the streets and to invite anyone they find to come to the banquet. So that's what they did. And the halls filled with guests, and the banquet goes on because the king shows grace in inviting those that he had no relationship with. There's no reason for these people to be, even be invited other than the king wants to honor his son at the wedding And so they gathered the people because the custom of the day required those guests to refuse the invitation. And so they were urged to come both good and bad. The parable is easy to follow. The guests who fill the banquet hall represent everyone who does not deserve a place at God's eternal kingdom celebration. They represent flawed Israelites who are unworthy. The ordinary people, the sinners who seem to have no relation to the king, they represent Gentiles Nations and peoples who once Seemed far removed from the kingdom From the beginning the gospel predicted that Jesus Would come to the Gentiles and shortly After Jesus' birth Simon called him A light for revelation to the Gentiles Listen This parable still holds true It still holds true for us People hear the Gospel and they initially say yes and then they back away from it it holds true for some people that call themselves christians as well maybe they go to church occasionally and maybe even regularly they like some of some of what jesus has to offer and say but they refuse to buy into the whole package it's not enough to say yes to god one time many people go through the motion they get baptized there's more to faith than that true believers say yes to the gospel and come to Jesus as a redeemer and Lord just as he presented in the gospels listen the invitation remains important we get invited to to get togethers to parties or sports invitationals something about going to something that is um, by invite makes you feel important because you got invited but there is a gathering that doesn't require credentials. The host is the most important person there, and the guest list will floor you. It is not an exclusive party. Everyone's invited. It is a free gift of the gospel, and the king of the universe requires your presence. And before we knew him, apart from anything in us, the Lord God put into motion the process which brings ordinary people into his kingdom and into our and it is our job yours and my job to invite others to come along not everyone is going to accept our invitation in fact if we look at church studies they show us that it takes a minimum of 8 invites to get someone to church one time but start now and keep inviting Start now and keep inviting. Start now and keep on welcoming. James 2, 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in a shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears a fine clothing and say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The scene is laid out for us. The people of God are gathered in seats. The seats are scarce. Two people arrive at the same time. One of them is wearing nice clothes and a gold ring. He's wealthy. The other is in shabby clothes. He's poor. Someone is in the back, and they watch them enter. They make a decision that the rich man needs to get the last good seat, and the poor man, he can sit on the floor. Now, let's not pretend that we don't have ways to identify social rank. Because we do. We look at skin color. We look at the way someone carries themselves, their speech patterns, their circle of friends, the things they talk about, what they do for leisure. Oh, you should have seen our fabulous trip to Paris this year. We look at the car they drive. All these things cause us to rank people. I don't think we would ever put a poor person on the floor. But let me tell you, we still find shows to ways to show favoritism to people who look and act different than us or look and act like us. And if we pretend to think it's okay to be mean-spirited to other believers because they don't look or act like us, Do we welcome everyone to our church with open arms? Do we do that? Don't miss the point. The rich man is escorted to the good seat, but the poor man is told to be seated far away from everyone. He is treated as less important. Though these two men represent extremes, there are to be no distinctions in the church, no distinctions of social class, standing position wealth prestige or recognition how often has a poor person visited a church and not been welcomed with open arms? How many of us have felt uncomfortable or uneasy around a poor person or those who we deem lower than us? How many of us have ignored or neglected and shunned those who are not like us? How many of us have failed to greet or welcome those that perhaps look different than us? This is not of Christ and it's sinful. May God lead me to lead First Baptist Church of Washington, church uh, that we would love others and that we would welcome others with open arms no matter how they look no matter matter their social standing that we would just love them with open arms the fact of the matter is this everyone should feel welcome here everyone start now and keep on challenging start now and keep on challenging 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Our world is based on not challenging others. We want to live and let live. But notice the challenge that Paul delivers here in the present tense, meaning they are to to be continually done. Paul's making it clear. Be alert. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith so you are not swayed by false teachers and stand against those who misuse god's word be men of courage don't back down be strong and grow in your faith to be able to stand against the world and live in love the greatest answer to division within the church is love love must prevail in the hearts and behavior of the believers god is glorified when his people act in love and they put the welfare of others first and worship God in a way that is consistent with his character. Self-sacrificing love is the model given to us by Christ and it's the key to the health and growth of his church both individually and corporately. We must challenge one another to live out our faith. We don't live and let live. We don't sit back and say it's none of my business we don't say well it's their life this is not at all what we are called to do that's not love it's ignorance and so i ask you it's like i did last week are you on board with the mission because it's urgent the time is now not next year not when we have our act together. Not when we finally feel like we can be urgent and persevere and start now and keep on going. The time is now. We, we have to be urgent. We have to persevere. We start now and we keep on believing we start now and we keep on praying we start now and we keep on investing we start now and we keep on inviting we start now and we keep on welcoming we start now and we keep on challenging are you going to do it or will you be satisfied with doing what you've always done i'll just keep keep on doing what i've done every single week Don't you get bored with doing what you always do week after week after week after week after week? I do. It's time to be urgent and persevere. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need a spirit